Hi, welcome to the first episode of Curiosity Verified. This week, I sat down with Keshav Padmanabhan, who is an alumnus of the college I'm currently studying at, which is Manipal Institute of Communication. He's a LAMP Fellow, and the LAMP Fellowship is essentially a program where a young researcher is paired up with a member of the parliament, either in the Lok Sabha or the Rajya Sabha. His interests lie in public policy and political analysis. So being fairly interested in that and not knowing far too much in those subject matters, I sat down with him to kind of uncover what he's doing and uh, just have a chat with him. It was surprisingly open and easy to have a conversation with him. And I hope that this is somehow insightful as well to you. So can you... um, First, introduce yourself. <laughs> yes, I'm Keshav. Uh, I'm an MIC alumni, and right now I'm a LAMP fellow. Um, so, what the fellowship is, since you were asking, is mostly it's a it's a way to get young people, as you point out, into public policy or into the public space, to learn and to be mentored by people who work it uh, as parliament, as members of parliament. Uh, it's sort of like having MPs teach and say new uh, in different kinds of research, data analysis. So you kind of see what those people who are making decisions, the decision makers, to see what they want. And it's very, right? We have, what, 790 MPs plus the vice president. Mm. So that, that's, a, that's a huge system of views, opinions, and those 790 people plus the vice president sort of decide laws and the direction that the rest of the country has to follow because of their role in decision-making. So the fellowship is sort of trying to bring research and hardcore research and students interested in research in contact with these MPs who want to mentor students into uh, the parliament and legislative action and uh, legislative work in general. Uh, The fellowship is non-partisan, so I don't take positions on present bills, at least in the last year, can't really sh- don't really have political positions on it, which uh, does not mirror my own bosses, because that's just ethics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the idea mostly about this fellowship is sort of, it's two ways. One, to bridge, to add value to the MP speeches, and also add value to the LAMP's uh, growth in public policy or whatever they wish to do afterwards. Uh, civil, civil services, public administration, public policy, you have multiple different varied interests. So someone, some people, some folks want to do business, so you have a wide, diverse crowd of people. Uh, maybe not diverse ethnically or uh, uh, cash-wise. You know, there is a certain wealth privilege that the 52 of us come from. But nevertheless, it's sort of this diverse set of minds uh, who have varied interests who sort of get put with these MPs who've seen a lot of things to, like, like create a, to bridge different gaps and add value on both sides of the uh, both sides of the fellowship. Okay, and um, how once you're selected to be part of the Lamb Fellowship, how is it decided if you go to like a Rajya Sabha MP or a local? Uh, random. So they they okay. tell us that it's just literally they open up an Excel sheet. They have the list of MPs, the list of names, and they just randomize it. Uh, okay. The only things that they look in uh, very clearly is two things: language. Mm-hmm. Because I, people tell them openly, listen, we may have a language problem, so I may not get a MP who speaks only in Hindi or needs or reads or writes only in Hindi. Mm-hmm. Uh, so language is one criteria that they look at. And the second is safe spaces. Okay. Uh, some MP offices may be entirely all male. So mm-hmm. 
it may not be safe, a safe space for females to go in there. Yeah. So these guys know that out of his, out of the past and dealing with things. So they sort of look at that as well when they randomize it. But apart from that, there's really not, no other criteria. From my own experience, my boss, uh, he's a very serious parliamentarian. He likes his job and uh, he wants someone because I, I may have, I don't know if you listened to the talk I had given a bit earlier, but it's mostly uh, you have so many bills that goes from industrial wages codes to religious laws to economic decisions, right? So an MP needs to be well-versed in everything, but just scope of the country is so large that it's quite hard. So MPs would like to have someone to like break the bigger issues down to some of its parts and sort of say these are the parts that make this whole thing what it is so that they're able to create a position better placed for the people they represent okay uh so i know that there's a lot of mps who would love lamps uh but i know that some of the lucky few include dr shashi tarur supriya suleiman uh rajavadan singh ratoji uh varun gandhiji uh, Derek O'Brien, Jay. so all of these MPs have lamps and sort of use lamps, but uh, yeah, that's that's what we do, and that's why they want us there. Mm-hmm. And how did you find out about your lamp fellowship that got you to apply for it? Uh, accidental, uh, completely accidental, but it's very common in national law schools. Uh, it's been a like a monopoly of law students that come in there because it, if you're either in DU or if you're in law school, you hear about the LAMP program because mm-hmm. you hear about things that go on in Delhi. One of my friends from law school, uh, she was applying for this and I had just come back from Germany and she said this would be a good opportunity for you. Uh, I looked at it, sent in my application and then somehow I'm now a LAMP. And what, what, what is your application procedure like? I mean, you did mention one is letter of intent and one is a policy analysis. Yes, and then an interview. So if they if the if PRS likes your statement of intent and your written policy analysis, your written essay, they then put out a shortlist of about, I think, 200 to 300 people, depending. I'm not too sure about the exact numbers, but PRS then calls you for an interview. You can either give the in-person interview if you live in Delhi, because a lot of lamps are from Delhi or DU, or you can give it via Skype. And then about two weeks later, they put out the final notification. They send you if you have been invited or not been invited. And how many people, like how maybe a broad percent of people in the lamp fellowship are lawyers, since you said it is kind of like dominated by law students? I mean, out of the 52 of us, I, I could safely assume about... 30 to 35 of them. Okay. And what are the fields do people come in from? We have a couple of engineers, a couple of guys who've done their MBAs, uh, media and journalism, myself, uh, quite a few political science students, Mm -hmm. quite a few sociology students, uh, but the rest are all lawyers. Uh, But they try, I mean, the credit to PR versus they try to have as many, it's not law specific. Mm -hmm. It's just that lawyers are, their applications just look a lot better when you're dealing with policy analysis and all because that's something they're trained in, which other streams don't really get that kind of training. Okay. But nevertheless, I, I would be it would be safe to assume about twenty five to thirty lamps uh, or have studied an LLB in some okay. form. So, 
you did mention during your talk that you kind of wanted to bring more media students yeah. or people from the media sphere into it is there any particular reason why you feel that that needs to be inserted i mean it's just um so this is something very personal at the end of my 3 years in manipal i was confused uh i i keep saying this line and i say make you a uh, jack of all trades but master of none Uh, you really don't know what is out there because you've done all of these wide variety umbrella of courses, but you don't have a specialization, uh, and that sort of keeps people away from public policy. Even yeah. though they may be interested in it, they may really have the keen knowledge and interest to learn. But because of we may not be smart enough, or we may not know enough, like a lawyer or something, they sort sort of shirk away and move into other fields like ad and PR. And I mean, credit to them, but nevertheless, I feel like if they knew that public policy options exist and public policy opportunities exist, and they can make a more informed decision, then it would be nice to see people who are trained in journalism and media and these kind of fields to also join the political, public, political narratives. And uh, it's rather than looking at it from just we all have our experiences but it just seems nicer to have a more wider range of experiences being added to uh, something like lamp or just generally public policy uh, which is not law oriented solely okay explain like i'm 5 years old what is public policy and what does it mean to somebody who's just a regular citizen doing a job unrelated to policy making or bureaucracy i mean I mean, that that's a difficult question right so, okay <laughs> uh, it is it's widely so if you want to know what what is this point of studying or working in public policy it's quite simple it's uh governments don't act in vacuums they take decisions to improve the lives of their citizens so that's the rational notion that we all have about governance and uh, public policy sort of to understand that path and sort of study if what the government is doing is actually working Uh, so you kind of need people putting their minds together to find solutions to problems, and uh, no government can do that alone. It needs an informed citizenry, it needs an active citizenry, and it needs people who are willing to work to improve laws and uh, improve social cultural issues and that kind of thing. So public policy, in general, for me, or the way I look at it, is just something that we all do anyway at the dinner table. But it would be good if we could. take it from the dinner table to actual on ground research or work okay uh so to explain to a 5 year old it's very simple actions happen or the government wants to do something uh they're going to come to the public they always do uh, if you read the newspaper you usually have a notification from standing committees which says we'd like your opinion on this bill mm-hmm. we'd like your opinion on this piece of law the government put it out last week on the private data protection bill the standing committee the joint parliamentary committee working on it put it out now they get comments from a wide variety of people but even if you look at the numbers i mean you may have 2 lakh comments on it right but that 2 lakhs is what 200,000 people in a population of 1.3 billion mm-hmm. uh, so you sort of see how public policy and how all of policy decisions happen in the shorter forms because people aren't willing to engage and, okay. uh, for whatever reasons and it's nice to sort of have no people not talk about issues at the dinner table and sort of find ways and paths in their own small ways to sort of ensure better governance and uh, that's sort of why i like public policy and why i want to continue researching why governments act the way they do and how they engage with their citizens okay and 
since you said um, you know they always consult like they put this out in the newspaper kind of thing um, this is like the parallel I'm drawing in my mind right how we discussed earlier a lot of people from my class and let's just say a lot of people in my age group don't necessarily read the newspaper or skim over it maybe might not notice it but there is a lot of like discourse online mm-hmm. made be through like someone's like personal Instagram they share it to their mm-hmm. students to share it with their friends or it's through their public Twitter account or whatever mm-hmm. it is so how much of a space does online discussion have when it comes to these things I'm guessing it's not a lot right now mm-hmm. um, even if that's not the case how do you see that evolving in the future for India I mean you'd be surprised uh, um, I mean the way I see it most politics stays on Twitter mm-hmm. especially in India it's all about your yeah, outreach and that's that's a wonderful case study in 2014 when I was still a student I was not very active on Twitter uh, so I really did not know what was the strength of the BJP in their campaigns but it was a truly marvelous social media experiment in 2019 as well mm-hmm. 2020 it's only continuing Donald Trump's social media outreach so politics is no longer in print it's no longer on television it's moved to social media now everyone is talking for that five minutes of fame on Twitter or doing something so that the hashtags are picked up and people are talking about it. So, I mean, so so much so that these notifications on public commenting is on the Lok Sabha and Rajya Sabha Twitter portals now. They put out the circulars there as well. But clearly, people our age don't follow Lok Sabha and Rajya Sabha twi- yeah. Twitter handles, which is funny. But yeah, it's, it's, it's there. I mean, so social media and online has become the political space for whatever reason. I mean, people far superior knowledge to me will tell you why exactly we've moved online. Uh, but that's that's the norm. That's the new norm. That's the new normal. Uh, most politics today is online, on social media. But the problem with that is because of its randomness and its ability to be anonymous, mm-hmm. you don't know what is fact and what is a mystery. And that is where print still holds sway. Print is the last bastion of fact. Uh, Not all papers, but a large majority of those papers are still the last bastion of fact. Because if you want to set up a blog tomorrow and write so and so person had sex with a sheep, post that as a news article. Uh, And it's against a specific politician, whoever it is. It could become truth, and uh, I mean it's slander and libel, of course. We have laws against it, but how many people are pulled out for slander and libel yeah. in this country? Not that much. While you can't do that in a newspaper, mm-hmm. you can do that probably on certain news channels, but you can't do that in a newspaper. Uh, so, which is why, how much ever we move and we transform into the social media juggernaut of politics, the last true information. Uh, information center will always remain the newspapers and that's not going to change anytime soon Uh, Mm -hmm. so it's sort of if you want to be into public policy Twitter is your uh, bread and butter you watch Twitter quite often but that's not the basis of your knowledge that will always be okay that's kind of just like an add-on to Whatever. Twitter is a good public pulse. Keeps you, it keeps you, keeps a year to see what people are talking about. But nothing like the newspaper. 
not a source of information. Not as a source. Okay, so this concept I'm talking about might be a little vague because I'm trying to figure it out as well. Mm-hmm. So to me, um, when you say public policy, and in my mind, public policy also means um, seeing the kind of problems or you know things that you want to change around your local environment yeah. and figuring out how to do that whether yeah. that is something like waste disposal maybe it's the roads around you maybe it's a social issue that's going on in your neighborhood in your yeah. district whatever it is so given this basis how is it possible for somebody who is living in a city or a town to go about it in such a way where after they recognize a problem or something that they would like to change how do they go about actually figuring out what to do who to talk to and what to do i mean i mean okay there, there is a paucity of information exchange despite twitter and all of that but i mean every every city every every area has a local organization so i mean it, it you may not know it exists but it exists uh, for example the city i come from madras we have exnora which does uh, waste collection and they've been doing it using cycles and all of that they're environmentally friendly and they've been doing it for 25 30 years so if you have a waste collection issue in your area uh you can always call it snora and be like how do we solve this this is a problem what, what, in my what is this called xnora okay exnora okay so you know you have in every city has local networks already okay they have local advocacy groups they have local ngos they have people involved you name it there's someone already involved in it locally Uh, how do you get to find out that may be a bit harder and that again city to city varies uh, again depends on which class cars whatever whatever privilege whatever all, all those caveats included but it's not that hard to find something to be locally involved in uh, you just have to be okay with putting the time into that but don't don't uh, mistake that so i'm that's for me public advocacy or public engagement which okay. is absolutely necessary but that's not what i do okay. uh, that's definitely not what i do what i do is i analyze actions that are taken or actions that may be taken to tell you yes no maybe good idea bad idea that's what i do and that's the difference between like a policy analysis or a policy analyst to a public that is engaged in civil society and civil action okay So would you say what you do is a more specialized more in-depth extension of what I'm talking about or do they not fall in very overlapping spheres I mean I guess they overlap uh but so my focus will always be on the government actions I don't focus on local NGOs and local self-help groups but there are development study centers and research centers that do that I mean, self-help groups, women's self-help groups, micro-lending and credit, wet waste management. There are people who study all of this. And that also falls more, to me, logically, that would be more development studies. But I mean, there's too many overlaps. Like, yeah. how do you say one field stops here and the next field starts here? Yeah, yeah. That, to me, is something I've never understood. Uh, but I'm still 24. So maybe if you ask me this in 15 years, I'll give you a better, clearer answer. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, I mean, you do have overlapping interests, overlapping fields, but it's more just this idea of um, if you want to be publicly engaged, there is always something you can do. Uh, in Manipal itself, you have Asare, you have the mm-hmm. Asare home, you can be publicly engaged, teaching, doing things there. Um, you have enough schools here that 
could have volunteer teachers, education, sort of on-ground education. You can study like, uh, you, uh, if you see Manipal, we have so many construction workers. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the biggest questions that people forget to ask is where do they live? Mm-hmm. Do their children go to school? Uh, I remember for the class project, I once wrote a feature uh, in my sec- first year, second semester. Uh, behind the 10th block or 12th block, uh, there was this huge community of 3,000 construction workers. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was quite interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say much on it because it would be, I mean, after that, uh, there's a lot of fun stuff to talk about that. But mm-hmm. You know, there exist these communities within communities and you can publicly engage and see how you could help those kind of communities as well. So it's not that hard to look for something that you can physically do. You don't need to change everything, but you can engage in what you like to do uh, within even small places like Manipal and these kind of communities. So, yeah, I mean, it's not it's not that hard to engage. Uh, Just have to find something you like. And I mean might be a redundant question but do you think how important do you think it is for somebody to engage in their local environment and okay let's just do that first yeah okay that, i mean that's specifically i don't i don't know i mean people love doing it i know people who engage a lot locally and actively because that's where people believe change first happens mm-hmm. and i have a lot of friends who work with these kind of advocacy groups that sort of say, okay, let's go to the middle India, see where girl children are not going to schools and figure out why, and create policies around that local culture, that local village or local block area. So it's, it's, it's people enjoy that kind of local uh, activity, and that's their choice. I mean, how much or how far do you think someone in public policy needs to do that? That's up to yeah. them. Because yeah. I don't focus on... Me, I personally don't focus on politics of the rural, I mostly focus on uh, foreign policy, which generally is what someone would call high politics, which is mm-hmm. uh, decisions of ministries and that kind of thing. So, I mean, it's, it's again, personal choice in your interest. And uh, I don't think there's any set standard on how actively you need to engage locally to do this kind of thing. Okay, yeah. Um, this is a bit unrelated, but it kind of came up in my mind. How, I mean, given the increasing numbers of student protests mm-hmm. right now and I feel like student mobility in this time of like social media kind of thing. How um, important is it for one student to step out and go for like a protest maybe like something that's happening in Manipal where like 30 people are showing up mm-hmm. rather than a larger like you know main city event. Mm-hmm. Do you think it actually is something people should hold as like a personal responsibility to be politically active or like how much of a difference do you think something like that makes? I mean, uh, again, this is wading into politics, which is personal. And okay. uh, I don't think there should be a set standard. I mean, I'm, I'm quite certain if any of my friends hear me say that, they'd be like, by not engaging, you're making a political statement. I mean, I've seen yeah. those posts that, you know, not engaging is a political choice. Fair enough, but at the end of the day, this kind of politics is personal. So if you believe in an issue so much that you want to go out there and stand there in the clouds to solidarity, go for it. If you don't believe you want to do that, or you believe you don't need to do that, then that's still your political choice. Uh, so how much should students do it? Or is this a good thing? I mean, you can't pass value judgments or something like that? Not necessarily a good thing. As in, does it actually impact 
like law making or does it actually i don't know change bring about a change is very broad of a term but i mean i don't know if politics of protest historically you see the president you see uh, do you think the congress government was corrupt yeah against corruption the ramlila maidan protest run by anna hazare ji <laughs> to me uh, i was in my 11th uh, okay. 2011 2012 and you had what they call the lokpal protests mm-hmm. uh, go 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 i'm so okay uh, go google that mm-hmm. that was where the idea of congress is a corrupt government sort of came to be and which is why everyone will always point to that and say look congress is corrupt mm-hmm. but that's because hundreds of thousands of indians across the country under the banner of india against corruption went out and protested mm-hmm. that has stuck that that forced the congress government to say we're not going to have a lokpal to pass a lokpal bill in 2030 that that narrative that congress is corrupt like you said you keep hearing it but name one thing that you think that what the congress government did was corrupt you can't yeah but that is what protests do civil so social mobilization of dissent is an extremely powerful tool to to create ideas that are bulletproof in people's heads you don't know anything about india against corruption mm-hmm. you have no idea about those protests but even today you would say congress is corrupt yeah and the people who raised the banner of dissent against upa2 was in there against corruption and all the cities had it uh, madras had it but not to the extent because madras doesn't protest at all uh, bangalore did bangalore and kabin park there were thousands of people outside kabin park protesting delhi was ramlila maidan anna hazare went on a fast over there yeah. uh, i remember rahul gandhi ji uh, tore up the government's lokpal bill uh, once one morning singh ji introduced it and said this is not good enough and this was considered big insult to the prime minister yeah. of india because this man was only the vice president of the congress but you sort of see what social mobilization can do uh, 1977 uh, 1975 to 77 the emergency protests when india was under emergency even today people talk about loknayak jai prakash narayan uh the bjp leaders atul bihari vajpayee ji lk adwani ji they all made their names during those protests mm. against emergency of indragadi so i mean protests are very useful they're very good tools for social mobilization and they do have an impact on law making it's a, it would be foolhardy to say no okay but if you are questioners things like shaheen bagh ca npr and asif I have no comments regarding that because I we're in the middle of it and I mm-hmm. don't know I mean I can tell you post facto protest yeah. did play a role uh but during that I have no idea I I I cannot make a comment that uh on it because it's impossible to predict something like this okay so it's best to wait and watch and see what are the actual effects at the end of all of this if okay. there are any um mm-hmm. but yeah um i think maybe to wrap up um i'd ask what would you say are like your top 3 resources for somebody to just stay informed about parliamentary proceedings okay uh lok sabha tv and rajya sabha tv uh, mm-hmm. that's the top you can uh, every time the parliament is in session it's being played live there yeah. after that they have wonderful panelists who have in-depth discussions on laws uh, on the proceedings of the parliament that's on youtube also on youtube uh, lok sabha tv has a own website and it's actually brilliantly done yeah. rajya sabha is entirely on youtube mm-hmm. uh, including all their shows um, 
So I think that's the best resource. The second would be the parliament questions. Uh, the websites have a repository of questions. So Lok Sabha has questions from 1992, if I'm not mistaken. On their website, scanned and kept there. Rajya Sabha, I think, has it from 2007 or 2008. But nevertheless, last like the last Lok Sabha had about 82,000 questions. The Rajya Sabha would have had about half of that. So there's about 120,000 questions in the last five years. That's just available and how there. Do you filter through that or how do you go through it? I mean, that's up to y'all, like... There's I, no set standard, no. Right? just kind of figure it out yourself. Yeah, I mean, I, whatever topic you want, you just put it there, you search for that name okay. and you see six, seven, eight, ten pages of questions that have been asked by various yeah. MPs and you just open it and go through I mean, it's what y'all looking for. Yeah. Mostly, I just love the idea of looking through that history. It's archival, mm -hmm. that, that data, that's my interest. And of course, I love posing these questions. I don't want to post questions that have already been answered. Yeah. So that's kind of like something as a lamp you sort of check first. That's number two. And number three, I would say the newspapers. Okay. There are multiple newspapers that give a lot of coverage to Parliament. And that's one of the best resources to keep in touch with what's happening in the Parliament. Okay. So you read as much as you can and you watch as much Parliament TV as you can when you can. And that's all it gives you an idea of what's going on. Okay, and newspapers you'd mentioned earlier, one was Deccan Herald, mm -hmm. The Telegraph? Uh, the Tribune. The Tribune, okay. Uh, I mean, this isn't free advertisement for them, but that's <laughs> what I personally love reading. Yeah, okay. Uh, I don't get Deccan Herald in Delhi, but uh, I read their website as much as I can. Okay. So while you're in Manipal, like, read Deccan Herald as much as you can. It's, it's and like, personally, are there any like online, maybe websites or news portals that you Frequent? I mean, I frequent Mint, but that's just accidental because like, they're free. And, uh, yeah. Uh, so I think everyone, if you have Google News, Mint is like one of your biggest. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, for, for online news, there's, there's only one news website I trust, which is Politico, but they do not cover Indian affairs. Yeah. Uh, Politico is politico.com, which is entirely US. And mm -hmm. I love it because I love reading US politics. And political.eu, which is the home for anyone interested in European politics, especially what happens in Brussels. Uh, apart from that, I also read like uh, a lot of news from the right side of the uh, political spectrum online because okay. they don't really come out and play. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to name them because some of, some of them may be controversial to people, you know, so I'm not really particularly going to name them, but. There are a few websites that you can read and it sort of gives you a good uh, aspect of what people are really thinking. Because mm -hmm. people always think differently. It doesn't, they don't need to fall within your side of the web. So yeah, Politico is the only one I can suggest. I also read The Guardian very heavily, but that's also because, um, I don't know why, I, I just grew up with The Guardian. So I mean, clearly I'm biased with The Guardian and they have a very leftist tinge. So um, that's a caveat. I really enjoy The Guardian. Uh, okay. I've donated to them sometimes. The Guardian is another website I like reading. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah, that pretty much wraps it up. Thank you for spending your time kind of discussing this. No worries, no worries. Just yeah. No worries, man. And that was the end of my podcast chat with uh, Keshav Padmanabhan. Um, I kind of ended it a bit abruptly because 
it's the first time I'm doing it. But uh, we had a really good time talking for a while after that as well. And I did ask him if he'd like to plug or promote anything since I forgot to ask him during the interview. And he said he doesn't have anything except that he wants everybody to go out and read the newspaper, um, as he'd mentioned earlier. So, yeah, that's pretty much it. And I hope you enjoyed the first episode. See you next week. So, this is when I was in the Netherlands on my exchange semester. I was using Tinder a lot, matching people left and right. I matched with this artsy-looking guy who has a complicated Dutch name that honestly I still can't pronounce properly. Um, We matched and I met up and... We matched and we met up and we had some drinks. We talked about politics, cultural differences, music and art we both liked and things we were reading. It was all going pretty well. We were vibing. Then at one point he goes, So, it's time for me to head home. But you can join me if you'd like. And in the few seconds I had to answer, I rationalized it. Yeah, let's go. So, the whole time I was going there, I kept thinking, is this the right decision? I have no idea who this person is, but I kind of had this gut feeling that he was alright and it wasn't bad. So we took a train to the neighborhood. So we took a train and then a bus. So then we took a bus and then a train and then a bus to get to his neighborhood. So then we took a bus and a train and another bus to get to his neighborhood. And I realized that this is way further than I've ever been and in a neighborhood I have no idea about. Cool. So took a train. So to get to his house, we took a train. So to get to his house, we took a bus and then a train and then a bus to get to his neighborhood. And I realized this is way further than I'd been and I had no idea about this place. So here's the thing about his house. It's not a house. It's an old pharmacy building that I think him and his friend were technically illegally squatting in. He explained it to me, but I still kind of don't remember the specifics of it. Cool. So we get in and the layout is whack. The door is not even a proper door. It's one of those thin metal and glass doors that are in pharmacies. There were no walls. And the living room was essentially a corner of this huge hall, just sectioned off with a curtain. But it was pretty cool. They designed it quite nicely. And um, yeah, the living room was cozy and it had... Yeah. So, we hung out in the living room, snuggled on the couch and watched some stuff on YouTube. After a point, he asked me to put on something that I liked. So, I was thinking of what would kind of appeal to other people and I put on Cody Ko and Noel. He hated it. I mean, he just didn't get it and thought they were mean and not funny at all. It wasn't the first, but it was a red flag. So at one point, we went up to the terrace to smoke and you could see stars and it was an open sky and it was all really pretty. Then we went to his room, which was basically the attic. He had a rack of vintage clothes and coats, very artsy, very tumbler, and there was no heating. So on top of the down coat I was wearing over my clothes, he offered me another coat because I was freezing. My teeth were actually chattering. So... After just like hanging out, I felt too awkward to make the first move 
but I had to suck it up at some point because he wasn't doing it. So I did. And we started making out. And it was fine. But at one point, after a while, I went, hey, I don't feel like going any further. Is it cool if we just cuddle and sleep? He was totally fine with it and asked if he did anything wrong, which honestly he didn't. I just kind of didn't feel comfortable going any further. And also, I was freezing to my bones that I couldn't even think of making out. So, we did go to sleep. He barely cuddled. So, I just kind of did my own thing and cuddled into my several coats that I was wearing. The next morning, I woke up and we just weren't vibing at all. So, I got up and said, All right, I'm off. See you. I kissed him goodbye and left. And then we never met again because he ghosted me. <laughs>